Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Twin Bills, the Red Sox podcast from the sports department of the Providence Journal, featuring Red Sox beat writer Bill Koch, along with sports editor Bill Corey. Now, Twin Bills. Hello and welcome to this week's Twin Bills Red Sox podcast. This is Bill Corey, the sports editor of the Providence Journal. With me is Red Sox writer Bill Koch. Bill, we're in the uh, the air-conditioned, cool, empty studios and offices of the Journal on Fountain Street in Providence with our masks on and our sanitizer at the ready. Um, and uh, we witnessed uh, a little bit of life from the Red Sox here in the last couple of days. A little bit of uh, encouragement, I think, if you're a fan. Uh, didn't go so well after winning that uh, the opening game uh, last night uh, in New York against the Mets. They they hit, they pitched. The bullpen gave us a little bit of agita, but came through. Night before, sort of the same deal. Um, is it too early to start worrying or uh, celebrating? What, what do you what do we make of these socks uh, a week or so in? Well, if you're a Red Sox fan, you start worrying before opening day. So I I don't think it's ever too early. Uh, I think the last two nights at Citi Field, it was nice to see something resembling baseball games again. The first five were all blowouts. The the three games against the Orioles and the two games against the Mets at Fenway Park. Uh, The Red Sox crushed Baltimore on opening day. uh, And then they were beaten pretty handily in the next four. The last two nights, I think, were a lot more representative of, of what we might have hoped to see in a 60-game season. There was urgency. There were some tight moments in the late <coughs> innings. Uh, there were some clutch performances by individuals. Uh, so for me, anyway, if the next 50-odd games are like the last two nights, I'm going to be very intrigued to see how they play out. Absolutely. I mean, it was a, uh, it was a competitive game. Uh, they came back from uh, deficits. Obviously, Vasquez is swinging the bat really well right now. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you know, Workman uh, on the first uh, first game there uh, in New York uh, seemed to uh, find his groove through the inning. You know, he was uh, on his way to blowing the save. Uh, and as I've said many times, he he worries me because he's not a you know he's not a fireballing closer. He comes in and he's rely so much on that breaking ball, which is very, very good. You have been consistent with that throughout last season, even when Brandon Workman had ridiculously good numbers. Right. You, you have been well on the record with that. So, folks, this is not a second guess. No. This is not, this is not a Bill hot Corey take. revising history here. No. But uh, you're right. He did He did uh, have, a, uh, have a good year last year for sure. Uh, but um, a couple of nights ago, he, uh, he was uh, sort of floundering out there and then seemed to kind of find himself through a really good curveball to Cespedes in a, uh, an important at-bat. Uh, and I believe he surrendered one run, but they, they held on and yes. won the game. Um, uh, and last night, the bullpen came in, uh, again, made it a little bit interesting, but um, uh, found a way to pull it off, uh, pull, pull it off again. Uh, so yeah, you know you're right. If 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 these games moving forward resemble uh, the last two, you know, it doesn't mean they're going to win every one. But if they're in it, if they're if there's a chance of a 
of a uh, of a comeback. If you feel that the bullpen has a fighting chance to hold a lead, even a one-run lead, then at the very least, it's worth our attention. Uh, another thing that that jumped out at me, Bill, and again, uh, I don't know um, if you caught this on TV. You you were you you're not with the team right now. You're right. sort of covering from uh, from the uh, lovely confines of Warwick. But, yes. Um, and one of the uh, Vasquez's home runs, when he hit the home run, and they're showing it uh, play out as it's going out of the park. They have fans in the stands, you know, CGI fans oh, or whatever. Yeah, on, on Fox, right? Yes. It's not, and it's not just you know the cutouts. It's actual fans from a previous game. I, I suppose that that uh, they superimpose, and that sort of took me aback when I first saw that. I'm like, wait a minute, how come there's all these fans in the? <laughs> and I'm like, oh yeah, right. They're just it's. So that, that that sort of stopped me for a moment. Then I thought, well, I guess, you know, if you can put cardboard cutouts in the stands, why not have, uh, you know, computer-generated fans in the stands, too? If we're going to take the first seven games as a whole, and, and I certainly think we can do that, I, I look at two central themes going throughout those. First is the starting pitching, and, and we talked a lot about that before the season, and, and obviously that's going to be a running theme throughout Mm -hmm. Uh, the three games where they got reasonable performances from their starters they won all three right Evaldi twice and last night Martin Perez who I thought really showed a lot of professionalism in that outing uh, a lot of experience in that outing in the third inning he couldn't find the plate Mm. uh, was in a lot of trouble gave up a couple runs and, and that could have gone sideways very quickly he was able to right the ship and pitch into the sixth inning. He gave them five and two-thirds. He was one out short of a quality start. And, you know, I just thought that, that his sort of veteranship there, and I know that's not a word, but his veteranship there I, I mm. thought was really important. I, I think a younger pitcher, a less experienced pitcher, might not have even gotten out of the third. Um, you know, so those three games, obviously, I don't think it's a coincidence. The second thing is Christian Vasquez, Bill. And, and I know Ron Renneke talked a little bit about this after Wednesday night's game when he said that Christian Vasquez in his mind is one of the elite offensive catchers in baseball. Now that's not something that you would have said when Christian Vasquez was a prospect. He was a glove first no bat sort of guy. Um, You know somebody who was excellent defensively and the question was whether or not he would ever hit. The only two catchers who have a higher wins above replacement than him since the start of 2019 are JT Real Muto and Yasmani Grandal, hmm. which means he's more valuable than Wilson Contreras, Gary Sanchez, Buster Posey. Go on down the line of names that you would think of that would jump to mind first. This guy's really become a centerpiece of this team both ways, offensively and defensively. Well, certainly there's never been a question in my mind about him defensively. No, you know, no. Uh, it was either last night or the night before he threw out a he threw out a runner from his knees. Last night it was last night caught stealing he from caught, his knees. Right, and and the runner had a pretty good jump, uh, and and uh, Vasquez just never got up and threw a bullet. It bounced once, but it was right on target. Uh, so defensively, sure, you know. And be- <clears throat> before we give him the Silver Slugger Award here, though, well, let's 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 pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, look, last year he was fantastic, mm. but you, you know what happens when one when a guy has one great year at the plate these days, right? You know, lots of questions and suspicions. And I'm not saying that he's doing anything he shouldn't be doing, but uh, you know, I I knew coming into this season that I would be sort of kind of on the lookout to see, well, what's Vasquez going to do with the bat this year? Was it just one of these? 
one year, whatever, you know, he figured it out for a little while. So far, no. So far, he's legitimately a middle-of-the-order hitter. Yeah. Uh, and obviously, would love to see that continue because, it, as you said, when he was coming up, nobody expected him to be a big bat in the lineup. He was a glove-first catcher, you know, uh, could call the game, work with the pitchers, certainly throw guys out. You know, he, he loves to throw behind runners if they're taking too big of a lead. Sure. Uh, but, yeah, you know, uh, if his bat continues to do what he— what it uh, what it did last year, or even close to it, that really is, I think, something the Red Sox weren't expecting, and all of a sudden have this other weapon in the lineup that they could, you know, you don't have to bat the catcher seventh or eighth or ninth, you can bat him fifth or fourth or sixth or third or whatever. So, uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, let, let's keep an eye on him. I think it's great that that, that he's uh, been hitting the way he's hitting. Let's hope it. Let's hope it continues. Well, and they when they were developing him, they sort of had the offense prospect and the defense prospect. He was the defense prospect. Blake Swihart was the offense prospect. Right. You were looking at him and thinking he's a switch hitter. He's very athletic for a catcher. He's capable of being a position player. Um, so you thought that his ceiling at the plate was higher and that you were going to have to teach him how to play the position. Yep. Uh, with Vasquez, there's no question that he was going to be able to handle a staff, uh, control the running game, do the little things like that. It's just a matter of whether or not he was ever going to hit. And, and I agree with you from the standpoint that you do wonder year to year about these guys. It's not always fair for us to look at it that way, but we've seen so much in baseball in the last 20, 30 years with performance-enhancing drugs and whatever else how players just all of a sudden blow up, um, you know, like he did last season. And the other thing you wonder about is he's sort of buried down the lineup in a really good lineup. Mm-hmm. If you start to move him up a little bit and pitchers start to attack him a little differently, can he adjust? Right. And, and I think his last two at-bats on Wednesday night were a great example of how much he's evolved as a hitter. Uh, the first one, the solo home run against Seth Lugo, was a hanging breaking ball that he just jumped all over like a power hitter would. Yep. Um, you know, had a good at bat. It was two and two. He'd fouled off a couple pitches, and then he got a mistake and he didn't miss it. He crushed it. Right. His last at bat, the two run single to right against uh, I think it was J- uh, Justin Wilson, mm-hmm. left hander. <clears throat> he throws him a cut fastball inside on zero and one. He shortens up, stays inside the ball, and just punches it into right field inside the bag at first base. Right. That's not something that a, a power hitter, a guy who's just looking to spin and lift the ball to his pull side would do. Right. So, you know, just in those two swings, you could see a guy who really has a good idea of what he's doing right now at the plate, who's really comfortable at the plate. And I think that's really important with some of the other Red Sox getting off to a bit of a slow start here. Sure, sure. Uh, so uh, maybe this leads us into our next topic, which is the changing lineup of the Red Sox. Uh, obviously, the biggest change, I think, or the most. Uh, the most noticeable is the movement of Andrew Benintendi, uh, who uh, was struggling at the top, uh, was dropped down. Um, you know, I don't know, Bill. I, it seems like, uh, to me anyway, maybe you give him a little bit more rope here, a little bit more time. But, you know, since they were dropping all those games, maybe Renicky felt that, you know, we really need to get somebody out there who can get on base and stuff. I would just hate to, to you know... Uh, because we know how good Benintendi can be at the plate. Yeah. And I would hate sort of for this to be uh, a reason that he kind of gets down on himself, dwells on, and maybe doesn't have the career that uh, or the year that we, we uh, think he can. No, no, um, I, I think you can say career <clears throat> at this point. Yeah. Because this has been going on for a little while now. It's true. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, I, I thought that he would really be 
uh, taking a step forward here in the last couple of years, and it hasn't seemed to be that way. Uh, what's your take on Benintendi? Should they just leave him be, or should they uh, should they um, do what they're doing and kind of sit him here and there and drop him the order and stuff like that? Well, the question about Benintendi leads into a larger question about the lineup construction as a whole. Mm-hmm. And, and when Ron Renneke says that he's getting suggestions from the analytics staff about you know, who to play and what the matchups are and, and where he should hit them in the order, you have a larger discussion about how much control the manager has over the lineup. Yeah. Now, you know, Renneke has said, and, and there's no reason to to doubt that he's being truthful. Um, you know, I, I I don't think any of us have caught him in a lie yet. Uh, and I, and I, he certainly doesn't come across that way as somebody who is duplicitous. Uh, you know, he doesn't necessarily profile as a Bobby Valentine type. Uh, I, I will go there to Satan himself. Um, you know, but I, I do think that, that he is being prodded and, and uh, you know, maybe steered a little bit by the analytics staff. And you would expect that because that's who you hired. That's what High and Bloom is. That's what Tampa Bay is. Um, you know, you knew that this franchise, as soon as they brought him in, was going to lean heavily into that side of the ball. Um, so I think you're looking at the lineup construction, and they're trying to match up against left-handed pitching and right-handed pitching. And you know, Renicky has spoken in summer camp uh, at length about the difficulty he's going to have with three left-handed hitting outfielders. Uh, Kevin Pillar is going to play against left-handed pitching. It, it's that simple. Mm-hmm. That's why he's here. If he's not in the lineup, he shouldn't be on the roster in those situations. So that leaves uh, Renicky with three options for two spots on those given nights. He could play Verdugo, Benintendi, or Bradley Jr. Uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. had the night off on Thursday. He batted Jose Peraza in the leadoff spot. He stacked the righties at the top with Pilar hitting two. Martinez hitting three, Bogarts hitting four, Vasquez hitting five. Mm-hmm. It's understandable. You you could see them getting three at bats against Steven Matz. You you understand why he's doing that. Um, but you would like to say that you can settle on guys at the top of your order, your best five or six hitters, who can hit lefties and righties and give you consistent everyday production. Right, right now it doesn't feel like they believe Andrew Benintendi is one of those guys. And when you look back at him and you think that he's the seventh overall pick uh, in the draft, his, his uh, junior year out of Arkansas, and he's a guy who you thought when he was 23, 24 years old could be an American League All-Star, could be a cornerstone in this lineup. Right. Now all of a sudden he's hitting ninth, he hit eighth last night. You have serious concerns about him going forward. You know, you bring up an interesting point with the analytics and how much uh, Renicky may be listening or not listening to them. You know, let's let's remember here, Renicky, uh, certainly a veteran manager who's who's done it before, but he doesn't come in with super amount of clout. It's not like he was at the ship uh, steering the ship when they won the World Series. You know, uh, it's one thing for a veteran manager who's been in who's been uh, skippering the team for several years to say, well, you know, I sort of. I listen to what they say, but I kind of go with what I feel is best. I think Renicky is uh, probably a little bit more uh, paying attention, a little bit more to what the analytics, the analytics department is saying. And, you know, it's a delicate balance, Bill. If, if you don't think the analytics department should run or should have input, then don't have one, right? <laughs> but obviously, right. as we know, Red Sox are very uh, very aware and lean heavily in that uh, sort of uh, in th- that way, and, and rely a lot on analytics, and certainly, as you mentioned, High and Bloom has done in that has done that in the past. But 
um, you know, it'll be interesting to see moving forward how much that plays a role in in Renicky's uh, in Renicky's uh, decisions. What surprised me is that he said it. He said his analytics guys have said this. I mean, I'm sure every manager in baseball hears from their analytics folks, and sure. I, I don't know that they all sort of admit it or say, "Well, I did this because the analytics team told me to do it" or whatever. But uh, I was like, "Oh, wow, yeah, well, I, get, I, I know that's true, but uh, I didn't." think you'd be vocalizing it like that you know <laughs> you know boston being boston everything is going to blow be blown up into a controversy um you know in renicky's case I, I would say that you know yes he he is an old school baseball guy but but he is someone who is embracing this uh jerry naren his bench coach was somebody who spoke in summer camp about how much analytics helped him uh, right. in his managerial jobs previously um you know and how you can just go to the binder and see who matches up with who and who's done what career and you know how they do against lefties and righties it's not all off the top of your head right. anymore there right. there is a basis for your decision there there is you know sort of a a, a rough way to predict the outcomes and, and i think that's what you're leaning on but you know the other side of that is that it's it's obviously very risk averse um, you know, it's it's all very sort of cookie cutter, prepackaged. We're going to do this this way because this is what the numbers say. Mm-hmm. It doesn't leave room for a human element, and, and I think the game is played by humans. Oh, it, it's yeah. not played in a simulation. Right. right. Uh, you know, there are certain guys who you're going to be more comfortable with, whether it's in certain parks against certain pitchers in certain situations. You can't quantify the way that they feel. But you know, as baseball players, that that matters. Sure. You know, there's a reason why Derek Jeter was a great performer in the postseason and Alex Rodriguez was not. There were two personality types there. Derek Jeter embraced those moments. Alex Rodriguez pressed. He squeezed sawdust out of his bat handle. <laughs> you know, there is a huge difference that personalities can make in the game. And, and I think, you know, I just look at Ben Intendi and I don't necessarily see a guy with a lot of confidence right now. I look at Christian Vasquez, and I, I see a guy who's over the moon right now. Right, right. Um, you know, is are these players that we're seeing on the field right now, are, are they what those guys are? Yeah, is that their For best real? representation of themselves? Is this right? who they are and yeah. who they're supposed to be? I don't necessarily know that, but that's who they are right now. Right, right. Um, <clears throat> So uh, before we uh, move on to other things, let's touch upon the, uh, the the starting pitching a little bit more. I know we talked about uh, Martin Perez, and first of all, I, I was pleasantly surprised by his performance last night because <clears throat> you know his first performance was was not so good, and I thought, well, you know, I'm not sure what they're expecting from this guy, but you know, he I think he went maybe uh, close to six innings last night, five and two thirds, and yep. uh, struck out four or five batters or something like that. I want to say. Um, and allowed two runs, and certainly, obviously, gave them a good chance to win, and they and they won the game. So, uh, kudos to him. It, it makes it makes me as a you know, if you're a Red Sox fan, it should make you feel a little bit better about the starting rotation because uh, after Nate Evaldi, you thought, well, then you know who who's gonna <laughs> who's gonna take the ball after Evaldi? Good question. Uh, so you know, now right. it seems like you might have somebody who can slide into that number two and number three spot. We still don't know what. Uh, the situation is with uh, Eduardo Rodriguez. Uh, he's still not with the team, or at least not slotted to pitch. Correct? No, not at all. Uh, no physical activity. He's been shut down. Uh, they've discovered he has myocarditis, uh, mm. which is inflammation of the heart muscle. Uh, it is a side effect of COVID nineteen. 
uh, occurs in up to 20% of COVID-19 patients. Yeah. Um, you know, it is, it, it's something that comes as a result of a viral infection, and, and that's what COVID-19 is. Um, you know, so he's been shut down from physical activity. They, they discovered it in an MRI. Uh, he's going to have to have another MRI that has to come back clean. I would imagine, you know, having a limited experience with, with heart issues and, and cardiologists that they're going to require a second one as well to come back clean. Th- sure. This is something that they're going to want to see uh, come back with no issues over a period of time, not just once. Right. Uh, because as Rodriguez said when he, when the last time he spoke to us, the heart is the most important part of your body. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and you could quibble with that and say the brain, but still, his, <laughs> his point is well taken. Right. Your heart is the most important part of your body physically. And for him to be 27 years old, still having these complications you know after he has recovered from coronavirus yeah it's really sobering and and it really should give you an idea that you know yes he's going to recover and he's going to go on and and he's probably going to live the next 60 years and you know be healthy but hopefully it's a real it's a real serious thing sure and and i think the red Sox are going to exercise an abundance of caution um considering that this is a heart issue i wouldn't be surprised if he pitches at all in 2020, that it's not until September. Yeah, yeah, at the it, earliest. It may it may depend on you know where are the Red Sox come you know August 31st. You know are are they so far behind that that you know why even bother or are they clearly in the hunt where you know he might be able to to uh, contribute. Uh, so so we'll see. Certainly uh, you know best wishes to him. But uh, you're right. It's it just I think in my mind highlights sort of the. Uh, how scary COVID-19 really is because we really don't know. There haven't been any long-term studies yet. Right. To, you know, what happens down the road if you have contracted it and, and you know, gotten over it? What well, what, what else could it lead to? Well, this is one of the things, as you mentioned, 20% of the those who get it have to deal with the, this heart ailment. Uh, so who knows? Ho- hopefully, hopefully uh, Erod is not gone uh, for the whole season, and obviously his health is the most important thing, and that that should be what determines whether when he pitches next. Uh, but COVID has certainly uh, uh, made itself known in Major League Baseball as of late. Uh, obviously, last week it was the Marlins, uh, and uh, MLB stepped in and essentially suspended their season for the entire week through Sunday, and we'll see if it goes beyond that. Yeah. But since then, uh, you know, uh, there's been there's been other teams that have been affected. Uh, the Phillies and Jays were supposed to play, and that that game was canceled. There was some news today. Yeah, the Cardinals and the Brewers uh, have postponed for Friday and, and possibly for the weekend. Uh, there are multiple positive tests on the Cardinals roster. Um, and, and you just look at, you know, where that's going to go over the next few days. The Marlins started with a few, and then it was nine, and then it was 13. And now it's 17 players and I think two club staffers. It, it's a full-blown outbreak. Uh, you hope that the Cardinals can avoid the same. Um, you also look at the scheduling domino effect and how many other teams this affects. And, and this is this is no different from COVID itself and what it does to the population. It spreads from one person to who knows however many other people. Right. When, when you do contact tracing and, and you look back, and you and I will be required to do this when we leave the office today, the only people that I've seen here, or the only person I've seen here today is you. Right. If there were six <clears throat> other people here, let's say. We'd have to somehow document that, right? We, and we've been exposed to those six people, mm-hmm. and they've been exposed to however many people they've been exposed to. And, and so you go further down the line, and we've been exposed to everyone they've been exposed to through them. Right. Um, so in MLB, not only is it 
the players and, and the staffs and whatever else, but it's the schedule now that you're looking at. And you're looking at the amount of teams that have had games affected by this who don't have positive tests, you know, whether that's the Phillies or the Yankees or the Orioles or the Brewers. Um, you're looking at more than 20% of the league right. who, have have ga- who have had games postponed. And, and so now Major League Baseball has announced that they're going to make some changes to the schedule. Uh, first of all, they're going to allow seven-inning doubleheaders, which is something they do in the minor leagues. Right. It's something that helps your pitching, um, helps your pitching depth. Uh, the other thing they're going to do is extend the roster window for 30 men. Uh, they're going to allow teams to carry 30 a little longer into the season. And, and I think those two things, Bill, are clear indicators that Major League Baseball and the owners specifically are prepared to live with this. And, and they're prepared to just try and push through. Yep. Now that they've started, they don't want to stop. And it's not about the integrity of the season anymore and, and you know the amount of games played or whatever else. It's all about finishing at this point. And they're going to do that by any means necessary, whether it's right or wrong. No, absolutely. Um, you know, the, the, the worst thing that, that can happen in their minds, I think, is to shut it down again. Because now you're up against... Uh, uh, the seasons, you know, winter's coming. I mean, at what point can, can you get going and still finish this thing out? Uh, obviously, there's a financial aspect for the owners. I mean, they're still getting TV ad revenue. Um, I mean, I think that the any any I think any thought that um, fans may may be allowed in at some point is probably out the window at this point. You know, I, I think that uh, they understand that that there's probably they're probably not going to reach a point in 2020 where state governments are going to say, okay, well, it's 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 you know we can start letting fans in, uh, at least not in the next couple of months anyway. Uh, but you're right. I think what they're doing is is uh, making sure they do whatever they think they need to do to keep the season going. But honestly, uh, you know, seven inning doubleheaders are fine with me. We've we've seen that in the minor leagues for for a long time. Mm. Uh, you know, I think one of the one of the drawbacks or one of the reasons the MLB doesn't didn't want to do that in the past is because they want a separate gate. You know, they they have a doubleheader. They they you know if, if they have to play them, they don't they don't even like playing them. But when they do, they'll play the early game. They empty everybody out of the park. They charge everybody for tickets again. And they come back. Well, none none of that matters anymore because there's no fans. Right. Uh, and you know, I think that uh, if 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 playing seven innings means you get two games in rather than waiting for some future date, uh, you know, I'm fine with that. And yeah, the the roster expansion sort of uh, speaks to the same issue. We need to have more guys in case guys get sick basically. And the sad part of that, everything that you just said, you're 100% right. You talked about finances and scheduling in the actual game. We didn't talk about the player's health at all. No. What if a player dies? What if a staff member dies? Right. Some of these coaches are in their 60s and their 70s. What happens to them? Yeah. And and I'm not saying that that's a possibility and and who knows. I I mean, yes, the players are young. They're healthy. The the odds that they're going to pass are you know, infinitesimal. Right. But there is a chance. And, of and, course. If, and if you're the owners, you're not even considering that at, at this point. Right. If right. you're the players, and this continues to happen, and say the Cardinals do turn into an outbreak, or you have another outbreak among another team, I'll be interested to see how long the players will go with this mm-hmm. without opting out right. or refusing to play. Right. Um, you know, we saw earlier this week the Nationals voted as a team that they would not go to Miami right. to play the Marlins. Uh, 
and the Nationals made it clear that it was not about the Marlins. It was about traveling to Florida. Yep. The Red Sox go to Tampa next week. Now, the Red Sox haven't made that decision. Uh, as of now, they're on board with going. And, right. and they feel good about going because they feel good about what the Red Sox have done in terms of protocols. They felt safe in Massachusetts, where virus numbers are low. They feel relatively safe in New York, where they're staying in the same hotel for the Yankees and the Mets, and you know they feel better about New York because virus numbers there are low. Mm -hmm. What about Florida? What about when they go there, one of the epicenters of coronavirus in the nation right now? Um, I think that, that the calculus will be a little different if something else happens to the race, let's say. Um, because you, you don't know when the Marlins are going to be back on the field. You don't know if Major League Baseball is going to force them to play on the road for a certain period of time. But I, I just think generally, as a society, this isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Right. And, and it's not going to spare baseball just because they're baseball players or, or professional sports or whatever else. They're just like all the rest of us. You travel. You're exposed to more people. You are going to get this. You know, it surprised me uh, uh, this week when um, we saw six players from the from the uh, Patriots uh, opt out, uh, and you know the NFL deadline I believe is Monday. Uh, if players choose to opt out because of the coronavirus, and follow I, Mark Daniels, folks. Uh, no, he, absolutely. Training camp yeah. is on. <laughs> it is, uh, and uh, Bill Belichick speaks this afternoon for the first time, but. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, I think the Patriots have more, have more players opt out than any other team, or they're they're right up there anyway. And that really hits home, I think, because it tells you that you know, uh, so there's a lot of players out there who were genuinely concerned. Uh, they might have uh, a relative who's got a compromised immune, immune system. They might have, uh, you know, a, a child at home where they feel it isn't it wouldn't be safe going back and forth. And I think this is inherently one of the problems with MLB's plan and, you know, uh, NFL's plan. The non-bubbles. <clears throat> the non-bubbles, yeah, yes. exactly. I mean, not that the NHL and NBA are perfect, but I think they had a good idea and said, hey, everyone's going to come here and we're just going to uh, do it here. But obviously with baseball, that would be much, as a practical matter, it would be harder to do because you need a place that has enough baseball fields that that measure up to Major League standards to play and, okay, well, where are the spring training facilities? They're in they're Arizona in states. and Florida. Right, they're in right. states where the virus is raging right now. So That's right. I, I can understand from a practical matter why uh, that didn't happen. But uh, be that as it may, at, at least you know the NBA and the NHL are saying, listen, this is serious enough where we've got to get everybody here and not let them leave and come back and all that. And, and so we'll see what happens with football. But I, you know, we're already seeing the effects here in baseball. And you really wonder. You know, you really do wonder if they're going to get the season finished. They, they seem very determined to do so, but yeah. it, it does come back to exposure, Bill. And, and I think you made the point that, that needs to be made, and, and it should be something that the NFL is looking at as well, um, the bubbles versus the non-bubbles. And, and, you know, you just look at this virus, and it's all about exposure. Right. You know, that's why we're at home. That's why we're working from home. That's mm-hmm. why, you know, when I go to the ballpark, we're not allowed in the clubhouse or on the field or anywhere else. It's... Masks on, straight to the press box, social distance, no common areas. Right. It's all about exposure. And, and when you take these teams out of their summer camp homes, you have them moving around. Uh, potentially, you, you know, it could be something as innocent as a player leaving the team hotel to go to Starbucks yeah. and get a coffee. Yep. He's exposed. He brings it back. 
you know, he's in a team meeting with, with another player or, you know, wherever else. He gives it to one player, they give it to another. That certainly sounds like what happened with the Marlins, and, and it feels like it happened when they played their exhibition games in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Georgia's another spot that, that is not in good shape right now. Um, and that's all it really takes because I don't think people understand, unless you've been in a clubhouse or been around a baseball team personally, just how close these guys are to each mm-hmm. other all the time. Even if you say, you know, we're going to spread them out and you know, we're going to make sure that they keep their distance and wear masks and whatever else, you can only do so much with a clubhouse, with the team playing, with buses, you know, with the dugout, right. any sort of thing. They're going to be around each other. Of course. And it's just a matter of whether or not they're fortunate enough to avoid this. Yep. And I think we've seen, you know, through the first week of baseball that, you know, the, the concerns are when one player gets it, you're expecting 10 to test positive. Right. Right. And the incubation period, you know, being two to five days, it puts you on hold. If you're the NFL and you have a bunch of positive tests on a Monday, you still might be able to play on the weekend. You've bought some time in that way. You're going to have guys held out of practice yes. and away from the team facility. Right. But if they somehow test clean on a Friday or Saturday, theoretically they could play on a Sunday. Mm-hmm. Baseball is an everyday enterprise. Right. You're not allowed that grace period. And so when the Marlins get shut down and you have a weekend series canceled, you know, let's say, between two teams, you've lost three games yep. in a 60-game season where you only have six off days to begin with. It's just that backlog is not something that, that we're set up to deal with uh, right now over the next two months. And, and that baseball in general wouldn't be set up to deal with even in the best of time. Right, right. No. Uh, well, you know, um, the uh, the effects of COVID-19 have had a, uh, well, you know, I think they've touched uh, lots of families. Uh, they, you know, you know, somebody who knows somebody who's had it. Hopefully you don't, uh, you haven't had to deal with losing somebody but certainly there have been uh, 150,000 Americans who've lost their lives to it and uh, one victim unfortunately uh, happened this week was uh, the Pawtucket Red Sox's longtime uh, GM Lou Schweckheimer who was gone too soon at age 62 yeah you know uh, Bill um, uh, you and I have talked about the Paw Sox and the importance of the Paw Sox to the region for uh, many, many times uh, but when you think of sort of the, uh, if if you will, the Mount Rushmore of the Paw Sox, obviously Ben Mondor is up there, mm-hmm. like Tamburo is up there, and Schweckheimer was uh, is up there too. They really turned what was kind of this second class minor league team in kind of a ratty old, broken down stadium into a gem, you know. And obviously it's it's unfortunate now that Rhode Island is losing. The Paw Sox, and they're moving up to Worcester. And we don't need to get into the whole politics of that again. But you know, Lou Schweckheimer was, was certainly one of the architects of building a Rhode Island institution. Certainly was uh, a terrible loss for you know Lou's family, obviously. Um, you know, the Paw Sox extended family, uh, and anyone in Southern New England who had the pleasure of going to McCoy Stadium. Uh, you know, over the last few decades, uh, I know. You, know, you and I have talked at length on the podcast about how we both, you know, went to those games on summer nights right. as kids, and and you know later on as younger adults, mm-hmm. and you know later on as uh, you know as media members, mm-hmm. um, you know, and just 
how special a thing it was that Ben Mondor and Mike Tamburo and Lou Schweckheimer were able to create there. Um, you know, sort of had the general and, and his two lieutenants. Right. And uh, the, the, the marching orders from Ben Mondor were, we want this to be family friendly, we want it to be affordable, and we want it to give back to the community. And he entrusted Lou Schweckheimer and Mike Tamburo to carry out that vision. And they did so wonderfully. Uh, Lou, for 37 years while he was there, Mike, who is still there as the vice chairman, yeah. uh, and obviously Ben, who has passed away, um, you know, but who did so much for charity while he was here. Um, it, it's just such a terrible loss. And, and what makes it worse is, you know, when you hear the things that people have to say about him, you know, he's one of the nicest men I ever met. He gave me my first job. He gave me a chance to break into baseball. The tributes that come in and that have come in over the last two or three days have just been unanimous in, in what a giving, generous, caring person he was. And, you know, to lose someone like that who, who gave so much of himself, you know, to the, to the game itself to the community it's just an awful thing you know one of the statements uh um that i heard uh since his passing was that he felt almost more at home at mccoy stadium than he did at home mike tamburo <laughs> said that and i think what a what a what a you know what a great legacy to leave is that that you've turned this place into something that you consider your home and i think a lot of lots of people in rhode island and southeastern new england sort of felt the same way you went to you went to the uh, to McCoy Stadium to watch a Paw Sox game, and it was like sitting on an old comfortable couch. You know, it was just you felt comfortable. You knew it didn't cost you an arm and a leg, and you got to see some really good baseball. And hats off, really, a tip of the cap to to uh, to Lou Schweckheimer for a job very well done. It's uh, you know, it, it's it's just amazing when you think about it. And, and you know, you have ten more years of perspective than I do. Um, <clears throat> that's that's a nice way of saying I'm older. <laughs> I did not say that. I did not say that. I'll, I'll leave that to your wife and, right. and lovely daughters to heckle you about your age. Uh, I would say that you know you would have a better perspective on what McCoy was like, you know, before the renovation. I mean, obviously, I was going in the '80s. Yeah, yeah. But when you're a kid, you think everything is great, and you don't notice that the stadium's falling down, right. and that the restrooms have troughs in the middle, and you know that's not like you you don't pay attention to those things. Yeah, right. right. You know, and, until you're a little older. Um, but I remember when, you know, obviously I remember the old McCoy, and then I remember the McCoy after they renovated it. Right. You know, when they get into the 90s and, and into the 2000s, and, you know, they set the franchise record for attendance and, you know, almost had 700,000 fans one season at McCoy. Average 9,000 a night, uh, you know, had so many great players go up to the Red Sox in that time. Right. Um, you know, just what they were able to do, how they were able to transform that franchise from something that was bankrupt when Ben Marndor bought it in the late 70s right. uh, to something that really was the gold standard in the minor leagues for, for so long. Um, you know, I, I think about what they were able to do in terms of renovating the stadium and keeping parking free and keeping ticket prices where they were. I, I think the box seats were $10 yeah. for, you know, so long. Uh, grandstand tickets were six dollars uh, i mean right. for a family of four like we were and, and most nights five when you know my grandfather used to come with us less than a hundred dollars for five people to go to go to a game right yeah and and i know growing up middle class in warwick um you know with two kids who are eventually going to go to college and whatever else you know my parents didn't 
yeah, they weren't necessarily going to bring us to Fenway five or six times a, a summer. No way. No, and and spend no. what it was going to take to to go to Fenway. Right. You know, and and that's not even to mention the time required to go to Boston sure. and you fight know, with the traffic and fight with the traffic yeah, and find parking and right, right. yeah, you know, the game ends and you're not home until whatever. Pawtucket was just so convenient in that way, and they made it somewhere that you wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you just consider that, you know, they hired Lou as a twenty-year-old a uh, intern out of UMass. Uh, you know, five or six years later, he's the vice president and the general manager. Yeah. Um, two-time IL Executive of the Year and, and somebody who, when he left the Paw Sox, he wanted to get into ownership, uh, bought a controlling stake in, in New Orleans, which was a AAA franchise of the Marlins, uh, bought a controlling stake in a single-A franchise in Charlotte, moved New Orleans to Wichita, uh, the wind surge. Mm-hmm. They're supposed to open a brand-new ballpark this year. He, he was going to create second version of this Paw Sox empire, sure. except this time he was going to do it out of the owner's office. He he had ascended to maybe that second point in his career where maybe for his next 20 years, being 62, he was going to be the next Ben Mondor. Right. He was going to be Wichita's version of Ben Mondor, restoring affiliated baseball and giving them this new stadium and giving them this, this great experience. I hope that the folks there are able to carry out his vision I'm sad that he won't be there to see it. Sure, sure. You know, it, it is. It was a little stunning to me when when, when it happened, and I uh, saw the news that he was 62 because I thought he's been around forever. I thought he'd be older than you know. I figured, well, he's in his 70s anyway, right? right? But as you mentioned, he started so young uh, and uh, had such a great run in in, uh, in Pawtucket, and right, he was going on to do uh, greater uh, great things elsewhere as well. So. Uh, so certainly, uh, you know, sympathies to his family, um, but certainly left behind a great legacy here in Rhode Island. Yes. Uh, so before we sign off, Bill, I wanted to uh, just touch base quickly as I was watching the game uh, last night. I noticed there was a uh, a commercial uh, that included uh, dozens of baseball players of color, uh, and it. Uh, you know, certainly uh, talked about uh, the politics of the time and and the importance of of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, one thing we didn't touch upon last time is the Red Sox have this huge banner, uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, on uh, up at Fenway. Uh, I know the Bruins uh, have said that uh, you know have, have issued a statement of support, and really all, all major league teams have, uh, and that's sort of been kind of. You know, you know, right now, COVID-19 is what's in the forefront of everybody's sort of news cycle now. But, you know, it's really been impressive to me to see all of these professional sports franchises kind of embrace this movement that I know is still very divisive. But uh, I, I think at the very least, it makes you stand up at least and pay attention uh, a little bit more. I know it does for me. That, that's the entire goal, obviously, yeah. is to mm-hmm. draw attention. Um, you know, when I, I think about this conversation, Bill, and, and I think, you know, we're two white guys who are from middle class backgrounds. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm pretty tan, though. I've had a well, lot of you, beach you, uh, time you this are, summer. Right? But you, you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's not necessarily going to be the most comfortable conversation for you and I to have. We're not necessarily going to be the most educated people on the subject no, matter. No, certainly not. We can't speak to it with, with any uh, authority because it's not, uh, uh, it's not an experience that we've, we've had to go through. But I, I think it is <clears throat> something that we need to be aware of uh it is something that we need to watch unfold 
And it is something that if we can lend a hand or give some help in an area that, that needs our attention, right. that we should be able to do it. And, and we should be educated enough. We should read up enough on our own to be able to do that in, in a constructive and, and productive way. Um, and, and so I think when you, when you look at what Major League Baseball is doing, embracing Black Lives Matter, um, they're doing that for a specific reason. It's obviously to recognize what their players are saying, mm-hmm. uh, to acknowledge their players saying, look, we need your help. This is happening to us right. day to day. It might not be happening to you, but it's happening to us, mm-hmm. and we are among you. We are a part of you. Right. Do you support us or do you not? Yeah. Uh, I thought Adam Wainwright had some really interesting comments on this. Uh, the Cardinals right-hander uh, was talking about Black Lives Matter last week, and, and you know, he's speaking about some of his teammates. I, I think it was Dexter Fowler in particular. And he said, you know, Dexter came to me and said, Adam, I need your help. I, I need your help. You know, you, you are a prominent figure in the St. Louis community. You also happen to be a white man. Your voice is going to be different on this than mine. Sure. And Adam Wainwright said, you're my teammate. I'm going to help you. What do you need? Mm. And I think you're going to see clubhouses do that. I think you're going to see players do that. And, and quite frankly, I, I think it's well past time that the Red Sox are doing something like this. We know their history. Mm. We know how bad it's been in Boston. Um, you know, we know some of the things that have happened in the city itself. And, and I think Sam Kennedy made it very clear. He said, we want to be unambiguous about this. We want to put it right out there so that nobody can miss it. Right. That we support this movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, we support the cause. You know, the fact that players want and, and need and deserve social justice, racial equity. It's not an issue about the flag or uh, our veterans or police. It's about those root causes. Mm -hmm. Um, Don't allow it to be co-opted into something else. Don't allow people to tell you that it's some sort of Marxist movement or it's being pushed by radical leftists or anything else like that. It's not about that. It's about a group of people in a country that is supposed to guarantee freedom and liberty and equality, who feel underserved in that way. Mm-hmm. And they need help at this point. And, and I think that is, uh, above everything else, that is the message here that Major League Baseball and the Red Sox and the players are trying to send. Right. You know, it, uh, it strikes me when you hear stories from uh, prominent athletes of color who have who share their own personal stories of of uh, inequality and it you know to me that 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 sort of hits home because it's you know it's like it it it, it cuts across sort of socioeconomic uh layers or you know what i mean it's just it, unfortunately uh it it's so pervasive that it it doesn't matter you know how much money you make, how much money you own in the bank, how, fa- how famous you may be or, or not. Uh, so I, I think at the very least, what you and I can do as, as, as white people is be more aware of it uh, and, and lend our support to it in however we feel comfortable doing it. Uh, you know, I think um, the passing of Congressman John Lewis recently uh, kind of, um, you know, 
is a, is a, is a reminder of, of someone who's spent his life sort of fighting for these ideals. And I think that uh, watching the uh, sort of the eulogy by uh, former President Obama and by um, uh, former President Bush and, and Clinton uh, really, for me, was very uplifting to see that people recognize that, you know, somebody who was beaten and almost, you know, killed for his nonviolent protests can now be, um, you know, praised by the presidents of the United States. So hopefully, uh, you know, as as we move forward as a country, Bill, that these things will uh, become, uh, you know, less of a problem. You know, hopefully, and I don't know if that's ever going to happen, but hopefully that the uh, the color of somebody's skin isn't the first thing people notice. I think the, the socioeconomic point, I think, is a really important one, uh, you know, because I know the NBA started up again on Thursday night and uh, teams are taking a knee for the national anthem. And you, know, you saw some stuff on Twitter, you know, from right wing propagandists who said, well, what, what do these guys know about oppression? You know, they make you'd be surprised. Eight, they make eight figures right. a year. Yeah. They're rich beyond anyone's wildest dreams. So what do they know about being oppressed? Right. It's not about what's in their bank account. It's about the fact that if Marcus Smart is driving through, quote unquote, the wrong town, and he gets pulled over by the local sheriff, he's just another black man. Doesn't matter what he has on his bank statement. He's just another black man. And if he doesn't feel that he's going to be treated equally, if he has any sort of fear about how he's going to be treated in public, by law enforcement, by his government, mm-hmm. that is the problem. Well, uh, you know, I saw some of those comments, too, and, and honestly, I, I thought, well, do you think they were all born with eight figures in their their uh, bank account? Don't you think they've had life experiences? You know, I mean, it's it's probably not a revelation to say that a lot of the a lot of basketball players in the NBA came from very difficult backgrounds and, you know, poor backgrounds. So I'm sure they've had plenty of stories to tell whether, you know, uh, so whether or not they're making millions of dollars today doesn't change their story, you know, so. Uh, but anyway, so uh, we will uh, do this again in another week, Bill, if we get the clearance to uh, to break the seal to come back into the uh, uh, hermetically uh, uh, sealed Providence Journal newsroom. Uh, you know, uh, what we didn't touch on th- this uh, in this podcast, and we'll have to recap next time, is the Yankees. Because they're playing the Yankees here for, for the weekend. Uh, the Yankees are, uh, I want to say they're like eight and, I don't know what, the, what their record is. They're playing 800 ball or something like that. No or, idea. Right, okay. But th- th- they're clearly the team that people thought they would be. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens down in the Bronx this week if the Red Sox can sort of put a chink in the arm But uh, until then, Bill, thanks again. Uh, We will do this again uh, in a week. Sounds good, Bill. Thanks.